0: Well, if you take your Bibles and open them to 3 John, we are completing, at least for now, our study of some of the Apostle John's letters, 1 John, 2 John, and then now 3 John. And then finally, as I've continued to state, we'll be in Ephesians, start that, which will be somewhat of a lengthy study, but I'm extremely looking forward to that. For us, um, very fruitful. But today, the title of today's message, one well needed for us all, and of course the body of Christ, is the need for hospitality. So when you think of hospitality, especially given my former life, for me, maybe for some of you, Your mind goes to the industry that is named after it. The hospitality industry is a title for businesses that make people feel welcome through comfort and entertainment. Every year, businesses such as hotels and restaurants make a living... Uh, make it their primary goal to shower customers with a sense of welcome and convenience. Now How do they do this? Well, it's obviously about providing support and providing excellent service for people to enjoy that comfort and convenience. We're all indeed thankful for businesses such as this. It's Obviously, truly a treat to enjoy uh, a first-class meal or to stay in luxury. We've all, many of us, have had those opportunities to do so. Nevertheless, what about hospitality outside of business? Maybe for some of you, that's where your mind immediately went when I mentioned the word What about people, and that's the key word in our lives, that exhibit hospitality, people that practice hospitality, yet without any desire for substantive gain? In the industry, nothing wrong with this, but they want gain. They want your money in order to serve you. Once again, nothing wrong with that. But when it comes to people and hospitality, there's often no desire for anything to be returned. You see, when it's all said and done for us all, life will be about much more than five-star restaurants and hotels. It will inevitably be about self-sacrificial people in our lives that we connect and mutually Live life together with. As you reflect upon perhaps some of your experiences of the past surrounding hospitality, I want you to remember the feelings of peace and comfort and gratefulness for those people and in, in whom have exhibited hospitality in your life when you receive that hospitality. It's a blessing for many of us. That said, I also want you to think of an even greater significant truth that we see in Acts 20, 35, which reads that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Surely, it's clearly a blessing to receive hospitality, but it's so so much more to give it. Not to mention, it's a vital element of Christianity. In our passage here this morning, we'll see John write specifically to encourage and protect this church with one simple theme. That theme being that walking in the truth produces hospitality a theme that we'd all be well-served to embrace and to live out. And This morning, I want us to answer the question, why is hospitality a vital element of Christianity? Three demonstrations we'll look at, by God's grace, hopefully should serve to drive us to practice it more. In doing so, this would be a wonderful privilege and blessing for any body of Christ. Amen? Not to mention, and probably more importantly, an act of obedience to the God in whom we love. With that said, would you stand with me, please? As we read 3 John, I will read the entire letter Uh, for the sake of time and our exposition here this morning. I'll only focus on his instruction. I won't cover necessarily his introductory words of encouragement and then his closing words of encouragement. But I'll read the letter as a whole here just to set the tone. Beginning with verse 1 of 3 John. The elder to the beloved Gaius "...whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is, how you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth." Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers and they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church. But Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words And not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either. And he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write to you, but I am not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly and we will speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Thanks be to God for his word. You may be seated. Our first demonstration concerning the need for hospitality is, number one, the need for the body. And we'll see this in verses five through eight. Right away, first off, you'll notice John's affirmation of their faithful efforts. This flows perfectly from the introductory context that we just read in verses three and four, as he mentioned them walking in the truth. He has no greater love than seeing his children walk in the truth. Now, typically, as we've seen often with John's writing, walking in the truth is a general description of Christian living. We saw that at length throughout 1 John. Here, though, it's all about the context of this letter, which we will see is practicing hospitality. So, why is it such a vital element for walking in the truth, as John states? You see, we've, we've mentioned this in the past as well, but Christianity is not a Lone Ranger religion. We love, we have need for, and we care for the brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ. That said, look with me at verse 5. John says, Beloved, You are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. Now, we'll see throughout this message that you can certainly take a principle of application concerning hospitality revolving around those in whom we know and love and care for. And this is really the common understanding of hospitality. That said, it's not actually the true understanding from a biblical sense. It it relates to strangers. It relates to guests. Even if you consider the first century context, there would have certainly been more traveling preachers, itinerant preachers of the good news of Christ. For our sake, we might say missionaries. Missionaries. Even following the Apostle Paul's charge when he was talking about letting love be without hypocrisy. He spoke of this type behavior in Romans 12 verse 13 when he said contributing to the needs of the saints practicing hospitality. What's more concerning this need and this care for the body which is going to be key even in any area of Christian doctrine and practice. Paul utilized similar verbiage in in his letter to the church at Galatia. In chapter 6, verse 10 of that letter, he, he said, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those of the household of the faith. You catch that especially. It's it's the same word that even John uses. Although he adds the brethren who are strangers. This emphasis, this focus is on the need for the body. Not to mention this word accomplish. It's significant in what it communicates. It's, it's, It's exuberant, if you will, expenditure of energy. So the encouragement and the challenge for Gaius is that he continue pressing on. That he work with vigor and conviction and commitment concerning this need for the body, concerning hospitality, all in order to provide this welcoming and comforting environment for these strangers, these Itinerant preachers, these missionaries. Now, this need for collective support of the body only continues to shine forth in verse 6. Look at the beginning of the verse when he says, "...and they have testified to your love before the church." They, of course, being the strangers... Have testified of your love before the church. Even the significance of the your in the original language is pure or plural, communicating this church as a whole idea. I love the providence of God, it never ceases to amaze. Here we are. Even on this day, in essence, experiencing this verse with the sea landers. As they reflect collectively, reciprocally with us about what is transpiring in Japan as we share with them. They need us. We need them. The need for the body. Hospitality is a vital way. For us to understand this, it creates this opportunity for us to fall more in love with this need for the body, for one another. No one part is more important than the other. You know, as Paul alludes to this, First Corinthians. Jesus spoke of this type of harmonious unity and its effects in John chapter seventeen in his high priestly prayer. Verses 22 and 23. I'll make reference to it later as we close. But we see the effects of this this desire that Christ is praying. Even now on our behalf that we would be one. That we would be united in mission and purpose. And even that is a means of evangelistic appeal. As the world sees our love for one another. And knows that the Father has sent the Son. Hospitality inevitably plays a role in creating this love and this unity. Given that reality, John urges them even more to consider this faithful practice. Look again at verse 6 when he says, You will do well to send them on their way. Even when we consider our own missionaries, they cannot embark on their journeys without provision. This is the life of a missionary. It's the life for all of us in all reality. When we embark on any journey, we need support. We need provisions for the task at hand. For missionaries, it could be anything. From the financial support that we provide, a place to stay, a place to welcome them for lunch, a prayer, a word of encouragement to bolster and encourage them on the journey that is ahead. And John wanted Gaius to know that they would do well to send these strangers. On their way, to send them with adequate supplies and provision. And moreover, let me reiterate the significance of this word reciprocal. Even in Acts chapter 15, and I won't go there, but we see how the missionaries, as they traveled through Asia Minor, Brought forth joy to the congregation. Hopefully, we are encouraging the Sealanders. And any missionary that we come in contact with here today. But they encourage us. As we hear the gospel going through the radio waves. In the country of Japan. It's reciprocal. It's this type of. Reciprocal joy and mutual commitment that protects the church from, I'm going to say, a check the box mentality in their sending. Here's my check. Well, here's my gift. Oh, I will pray for you. There has to be a far greater motive undergirding it all. And John addresses that here in verse 6 when he says, a manner worthy of God. As a point of illustration concerning the manner worthy of God in sending forth these strangers. Listen to the words of Paul from Philippians chapter 1 verse 27. He says, only conduct yourselves... In a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and in one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Like a unit of soldiers, standing firm, striving together with one unified purpose and mission. Such is the commitment for the body of Christ as we understand our oneness and mutual mission. A manner worthy of God. There's a common and unified goal that supersedes any selfish notion of creature comforts, a willingness, a desire to put aside convenience for the sake of a greater mission, a manner worthy of of God, to give ourselves To the greater benefit of the body. What's more. As for this church and the strangers they would support. There's a collective. And there's a mutual understanding of this mission. And its need. Look at verse 7. He says for they went out for the sake of the name. Accepting nothing from the Gentiles. These brethren, these strangers, these guests are going out for the sake of the name. The name in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is whom they go out for. This is the Great Commission, a mutual mission. And primary emphasis for us all, brothers and sisters in Christ. Moreover, why are these missionaries, as the text states, not accepting anything from the Gentiles? It's all about protecting the gospel from any burden, from any hindrance. And Paul describes this type of conviction as he spoke to believers in his letter to the church at corinth i'll read from 1 corinthians chapter 9 verses 11 and 12 he says if we sowed spiritual things in you is it too much if we reap material things if others share the right over you do we not more Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Going down to verse 14, he says, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. The point here is that not only do the missionaries desire a message a primary collective unified message that has no hindrance the church that send them has this same idea and mission as well they both together understand the vital need for an unhindered message that said it's hospitality becomes one means For the body to support each other in that primary mission. This is the reasoning. This is the the direction behind why they chose not to receive anything from the Gentiles. Just referring to non-believers in this case. The church is coming together in order that the gospel is not hindered. In order that the gospel goes forward. Mutual, collective encouragement, the need for the body. Finally, considering this need for the body in verse 8, we see the greatest example of a unified mission. Look with me at verse 8. He says, Therefore, connecting back to what was previous, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth and right away we see this need for the body and just that plural pronoun we ought to support one could certainly see a principle for sending provisions nevertheless A more precise understanding of the text here is one in which receives guests. Be that as it may, I don't want us to miss the concluding purpose clause of this verse. Notice those two words, so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Perhaps at times for the world, and unfortunately if we're honest with ourselves, even within the church, hospitality can be looked at from an inconvenience perspective. To do it well requires sacrifice, does it not? And that gets in the way of what we want. However, for the Christian Even though there's sacrifice, we must never forget we are actually fellow workers together in mission. When practicing hospitality, don't forget that we are working together in the same activity. No matter what your role is in that activity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul provides an incredible illustration of this. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 7 through 9 reads, So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each one will receive his own reward According to his own labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Beloved. We're in this together. We are fellow workers. We need the body. Do we at times play different roles? Yes, of course. Sometimes we're called to receive hospitality. Other times we're called to give hospitality. Nevertheless, it is this hospitality which provides a wonderful means for demonstrating the necessity and the blessing of the body of Christ. Hence, it's a vital element for Christianity. So, with that first demonstration understood, in our second demonstration, we'll actually look at a contradictory example, yet one which clearly reveals another biblical need, one which counteracts the negative example that we see in the text. and Our second demonstration is number two, the need for humility. And we'll see this in verses 9 and 10. If you you glance down there at verses 9 and 10, even as we read it, you'll recall this certain individual that John references by the name of Diotrephes. He's clearly frustrated with this man within the church so frustrated that he calls him out by name he wants to draw attention to what not to do Gaius you are faithful I have no greater joy than seeing my children walk in the truth but oh be careful Diotrephes is lurking just a quick side note there Let us never neglect outright blatant sin within the church. To nonchalantly sweep it under the rug is extremely dangerous. If left unchecked, it can become a virus that spreads. You know, Ephesians 5 tells us that we are not to participate in the unfruitful works of darkness, of course. But he goes even further and says we expose them just as John does here. Maybe we're hearkened back to that protecting love concept that we discussed last week from 2 John. Be that as it may, setting that apart as a sidebar, I want us to examine the traits of diatrophies. And how they drive the church even more towards this need for humility. And first off, you'll notice how he loves to be first among them. what is hospitality, but selfless sacrifice? Yet this man desires to be preeminent. He's selfish. He's self-centered. Compare that to the great passage of Romans chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2 there as Paul begins to admonish the church to be transformed and renewed in their minds. And then in verse 3 of chapter 12 of Romans he says, For through the grace given to me I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Amen? Amen? Our Lord himself came to serve, not to be served. Jesus Christ, the God-man, made himself as nothing and took on human flesh in order to redeem and rescue his chosen people. What's more, Diotrephes went as far as even cutting off this authoritative message. John says, I I wrote to you, but... Wow. He refused to accept the message as the end of verse 9 indicates. Isn't it interesting how... Pride often serves to create stubbornness and disobedience to authority. Even in the face of authority, apostolic authority, the Apostle John writing to him and he blows it off. As we consider our own lives and the authority that we sit under the authority of the revealed Word of God in the 66 books of the Bible. May we always be found by God's grace bowing in submission to the authoritative Word of God. Scripture alone is what convicts us, albeit understanding. We fall short at times, although we do not practice sin. Perhaps even today, the authority of Scripture is tearing down for some of us our pride, our selfishness, in order to promote more humility, more of a commitment to hospitality. His negative example only continues in verse 10. You'll see he even goes a step further and he not only just refuses to accept the apostolic authority from the Apostle John, he falsely accuses the faithful. He chooses not to even receive brethren so he accuses them he does not accept it and then he says I'm not even going to practice this hospitality but but that's not even enough to curtail his disobedience he takes it two steps further and he says to you brother to you sister don't even do it and if oh by the way you do it I'm going to hurl you out of the church how does it get to this? In the original language, that's what is in essence being communicated, like being hurled out of the church for practicing hospitality. Well, think about this just for a moment. Diotrephes and his sinful pride directly damage the church's ability to practice hospitality. What's more, His behavior actually created a tacit approval of this sinful disobedience within the church. This is clearly on display in that they allowed him to do this. All the more reason for us to be on guard against blatant, Outright sin within the church. We expose it. We call it out. It's the most loving thing that we can do. As we desire repentance from that brother or sister. And as we desire to protect. The body of Christ. Nevertheless. What this church. Needed to be reminded of. Was the importance of. Humility. And selfless service. And diatrophies provides the contradictory example of what was needed. A contradiction which would hopefully drive them to truths that John has previously written about. And I could share multiple ones, but in 1 John chapter 3, verses 14 and 16, John had written... We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. We know love by this that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Amen. That's the model. That's. Hospitality, if you will, in action. So why is hospitality a vital element of Christianity? You Simply put, it's one of the best means for demonstrating the need for humility. James obviously reminds us in chapter 4 that God gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud. Hospitality, beyond a shadow of a doubt, will only serve to increase grace within a body, it will only serve to promote and create humility within a body. So we've spent enough time studying John to understand obedience will always be one of his primary themes, especially when it comes to walking in the truth. With that understanding, we'll look at our third and final demonstration. Number three, the need for obedience. Look at verses 11 and 12. As before I read those verses. You know, as we can see, this letter is all about hospitality. But what would we expect from John concerning why we should be practicing hospitality? I'll read verses 11 and 12. He says, beloved. Beloved. Do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Some of you may recall, as we went through 1 John, we laid out three primary themes for that letter, one of them being willful obedience. Obedience. To use John's words from that letter, he says children of God practice righteousness. Children of the devil practice sin. We talked about that way back when. How clear and precise and direct his communication is. As John closes out this instruction within this letter of 3 John, he concludes... With a command for obedience. He commands Gaius in this church do not imitate what is evil. The context here, Diotrephes and his self centered, selfish approach to Christianity and lack of hospitality. John commands them in the Greek, don't imitate this. Do what is good. Biblical hospitality. And then in similar verbiage of what he's used before, he goes on to say that those that are of God, he likes to typically say born of God, Here, of God, they do this. They practice hospitality. Those who do not have not seen God. Now, I need to hit the pause button for one moment with such a a bold statement such as that. If there is anyone here who is maybe even wrestling struggling with the weight of a lack of hospitality in your life, this does not necessarily mean that you do not see God, that you are not a believer. It's all about the totality of your life, the big picture. What do you practice? Children of God, practice righteousness children of the devil, practice sin. If some of us need to repent for the lack of hospitality, then do so. But understand that God does not condemn you, brother, sister in Christ, although he commands you to imitate what is good to practice hospitality and then before he transitions into his parting and final words of encouragement he closes out the instruction in verse 12 as he mentions this this other faithful brother Demetrius Obviously, for Demetrius, as, as well as Gaius, they would have been committed to the testimony of God concerning hospitality. They would have modeled the need for the body, the love for the body, a concern for humble, selfless service, and a desire to be obedient, so much so Others were even able to see it clearly on display and testify about it. That's what we see within verse 12. That said, what about us? As we look to close, I want to offer just a final thought or two for application. First off, I mentioned we'd come back to that John 17. I love that passage. That entire prayer is just incredible to, to soak in. Within that prayer, Christ states that our unity, our oneness, which he is even praying for now, is a means of outreach. He says that the world... Sees that and and understands that the Father sent the Son. Why should we be committed to hospitality? Why should we be more committed to mutual love and mission for the sake of the name? The world is watching. And I, I made this point in the first service. I think it's important for us to consider When we say the world is watching, we often think about outside these walls. But, oh, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, there's not a church in all of the world where perhaps there are some who sit within our walls who've never truly been born again. As we practice hospitality as a body. God can use that to draw those dear souls who need Christ. What's more? I know that much of this context pertains to supporting brethren that are in essence strangers. And now we understand this is really the technical definition of hospitality. Be that as it may, we don't always have that opportunity to do so in our day and age. Entertain or be hospitable to guests or strangers. That said, I mentioned this earlier, but nothing is stopping us from applying this principle even to those in whom we know and love and care for. How is God even now? speaking through his word to someone here concerning how you may practice more hospitality within our body here at Miriam Christian Chapel. Nonetheless, if given the opportunity to do so with strangers, with guests, believers in Christ that are united in mission and purpose, looking to Do so. I think of even last year, some of us had the opportunity to do just that. As we had many strangers come and guests to our congregation, and many of you opened up your homes to people you had no clue who they were. Obviously, there's some discernment and wisdom in the grander context of what that looks like, but. That's between us and the Lord and how we might manifest hospitality. And then finally, one more. Although this is somewhat outside of the context of this passage, there's nothing precluding us from applying the principle behind this to unbelievers. Albeit, Never crossing the line of what we examine from Second John. Those intentional, deliberate, false teachers of deceptive doctrine of demons. We don't even greet them, nor do we allow them in our house, as we saw from Second John. But oh, what about the confused? What about those in whom we care and those friendships that we have? Maybe I'm stepping outside of the bounds too much of the context of this this passage here, but I know that hospitality with unbelievers can go a country mile. And we should be concerned about reaching for the lost. So, we began with the statement that hospitality would be good for any church. Amen? Not to mention, and more importantly, it's an act of obedience. God commands us to not imitate what is evil. Henceforth, the perfect application is that we are commanded to practice hospitality. That said, I want us to pray together even now that God would begin a work in our hearts concerning the need for hospitality in our own lives and as a collective body here. Bow your heads with me in prayer. Dear Lord, we come before your throne with boldness and confidence, and we say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, thank you, Jesus, that we can come to you. But as we come with confidence, we also come as unworthy servants, understanding the sin nature that we still wrestle with. Lord, forgive us for our lack of hospitality. Forgive us for our lack of concern for the body of Christ. Oh God, forgive us for our lack of humility and our lack of obedience. But oh Lord, here today we rest in the fact that we are no longer under condemnation. But yes, Lord, we desire to be faithful stewards of the mysteries of Christ Lord, would you create in us a people here at Miriam Christian Chapel and for that matter, your universal church throughout the world, men and women who love the body of Christ, who will put aside our inconveniences for the sake of others. Lord, you provide the ultimate example in the cross in which we had nothing to offer to you, and yet you paid the price and said, it is finished for us. How can we not, Lord, look to this example and lay down our lives for brothers and sisters in Christ, strangers, guests, unbelievers? In the mighty and precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray.